If you'll please turn in your Bibles to today's scripture, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chris. If today is your first Sunday with us, let me give you a little bit of a sense of where we are. We're walking through the Old Testament book of Isaiah. He's, he's, uh, some people think of him as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. It's a long book, and so we're not doing every chapter, but we are walking through key chapters uh, beginning uh, in January here and running through Easter and actually beyond Easter. So we are just realizing that. I think we're going through May. So dig into the book of Isaiah with us, and I hope that you will find it rich and uh, you know, nourishing to your soul. One way you can get more out of the messages on Sunday is to start reading ahead with us. We've posted in an email to you uh, each week we send out what's happening. So look at this past email. I think we gave you the next several chapters. If you want to read ahead, you want to know what chapter we're in, uh, I think next Sunday is chapter 12. Am I saying that right? So uh, John's like, I don't know, you're the one preaching. (laughs) Let's try chapter 12 next week. So read ahead with us. You, I think, will, um, yeah, just get more out of it because it's so hard. These are big chapters. There's a lot going on. It's hard for me to touch everything uh, each week. So if you're reading around it and seeing it more fully, it'll help, I think, make sense. Now, so here's what I want to do to start. Imagine that you are the king or the queen and your country is in a national crisis. Not hard to imagine this week. Really, very close to home, given what we've seen at the Capitol. Unfortunately, a national crisis is not hard to imagine. So suppose you are king or queen of a country that's in the midst of national crisis, and your country's purpose, and yours as king or queen, has been to live for the glory of God on the earth and to influence every other nation that's watching you to know and love the true and the living God. Like that's the charter of your mission as a country and and as a king or queen. Now suppose also that this same country that you are in charge of as king or queen was divided many years ago, hundreds of years ago in a civil war and that you're responsible for the land in the south, Judah. And the land in the north, just above you, that was part of your country, is now called Israel or Ephraim, ruled by someone named Pekah. And 
Things are not good between you right now. Between your borders, things are not good. You're in charge of the south and he's in charge of the north. And the northern kingdom, Israel, has already reached out to Syria, who's just north and east of them, and build an alliance with them. And they're threatening you. And the reason they're threatening you is because they're feeling threatened by Assyria, and Assyria is the world superpower right now. And Assyria is overrunning, say, from Turkey all the way around through to the Persian Gulf, that whole region um, that includes Babylon and all that ancient area. So Assyria is the big superpower. Syria and Israel have linked together to try to protect themselves against Assyria and they want to force you into an alliance are you with me so far so you're feeling pressured as the king or queen of your country which is being threatened in the middle of war of the war that's what's happening in Isaiah 7 now here's the question I have for you what's the first thing you do when you realize war is on your doorstep do you do you call a meeting in the war room or do you call a meeting in the prayer room? You're in charge. Your first response as king or queen of this national crisis is to call a meeting. What do you do? Do you call, you call a meeting in the war room or do you call a meeting in the prayer room? What's the first thing you do? I mean, the very first impulse, what do you do when it falls to you? Do you where do you call the meeting? Some trust in chariots and horses. And that's what Ahaz did. He called a meeting in the war room. He called the wrong meeting. And that's what's unfolding in Isaiah 7 that will help you understand how things are, what's happening. The heart of the king Ahaz, in Isaiah 7, he's the king of the southern kingdom, the heart of a king who did not trust in the Lord, but instead leaned on his own understanding and in all of his ways acknowledged himself. Ahaz had more confidence in another nation, Assyria, the world's superpower, to deliver him because he's been courting them with money from the church, from the temple of the Lord. He's been exchanging silver and gold from the temple. You can read about this in 2 Kings 16. He's been paying off Assyria so that he himself can build some alliances rather than humble dependence on God to rescue him. And I just want to pause here and say you and I do the same thing in the most intimidating, threatening, stress-filled circumstances of your life, you are probably like me, prone to negotiations. Rather than simple, humble, utter dependence on the Lord. We look everywhere else first. So when you walk through Isaiah 7 with me, don't just be pointing your finger at Ahaz. Are you with me? Let's look for the heart of man in contrast to the heart of God. Look at the heart of Ahaz. I want to show you the heart of Ahaz 
Pick up with me in verse 10. Uh, so look at this. Uh, our reading today began in verse 10, which says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, ask a sign. Now, those of you who like reading and studying the Bible, you're realizing, wait a minute, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Tell us about the first time he spoke to Ahaz. Okay, go back to the beginning of the chapter. So picking up in, say, verse 3 of chapter 7, this is the first time the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And he speaks to Ahaz through the prophet of Isaiah. Look at verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, go meet Ahaz, go speak to him, take your son with you. He has a really interesting name. His son's name means a remnant shall return. It's a hopeful, preserving image uh, about God and what he's doing among his people. He says to, uh, so the Lord says to Isaiah, go and speak to Ahaz and take your son and meet him uh, at the washer's field on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, verse four is the key, be careful, be quiet. Look at verse four. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint, because these two smoldering stumps will go out. The kingdom of Israel, Pekah is the king, the kingdom of Syria, Rezin, is the king. They're like two branches they're like two stumps in the fire pit that are just burned out. You can't, they're, they're, it's over for them. I'm in charge, God says. Trust me. Be careful, be quiet. Wait on me. Wait for me. Trust in me. The Lord is speaking to the directly to uh, Ahaz's fear. He's speaking directly to Ahaz's desire to control the situation. He's speaking directly into Ahaz's temptation to say, I'm the king, I'll figure this out, I'll, I'll solve this problem. Isaiah the prophet comes and speaks directly to the heart of Ahaz. That's why verse two reads, if you back up even further, right? Ahaz and his people were afraid because the war is coming down from the north. Look at this. The heart of Ahaz and his people shook like trees. Like trees on a windy day that are blowing everywhere. They're afraid. And and Ahaz is fearful. He's foolish. He's independent. He's trying to do his own thing, and God is trying to speak to him and call him to trust. Twice in just a few verses, Isaiah uses the word heart to describe Ahaz's most significant problem. Ahaz's most significant problem is not Assyria, it's not Israel to the north, and it's not the alliance that Israel has with Syria. It's none of that. Look at it. Verse two, the heart of Ahaz. Or verse four, your heart. Twice, in just a few verses, we're, the attention is being focused on the most significant threat to Ahaz's own kingdom. What is it? It's not the enemy. It's his own unbelieving heart. Ahaz's most significant problem is unbelief. 
He will not exercise deep trust in the Lord. He will not exercise faith. This is what faith is. Faith is trusting God in this most intimidating, stressful, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know what to do, I don't know who's going to solve this problem moment of your life. And I say that because verse 9, I think, is the key. Commentators like to point out, as you're reading 1 through 9, that whole first segment, 9 is the key. Verse 9 brings everything together. If you're not firm, he's, this is Isaiah speaking to Ahaz, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Uh, this is military, this is political, this is future of your country language. He's not just talking about like sort of a, have faith today. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the future of a nation. If you are concerned about your future and your nation's future, if you don't have faith, if you're, if you're not, verse 9 says, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Firm, strong, steadfast. That's, that's language about how control and strength remains in a people and in a country at this point. So if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. You will crumble like the rest of these nations I'm about to bring judgment on. Like you and I think faith is this sort of, faith is this Sunday thing or it's this ambiguous, amorphous thing that floats out there and once in a while we have faith. No, faith is supposed to characterize your every single moment of life, every single, like every single time your life intersects with intimidating, threatening, I don't know circumstances. God's saying, if you're not trusting me in this moment, you're not trusting me at all. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, when the world threatens you from the north and the south, and when the consequences of your own foolish choices come against you like an army from the east and the west, and when your self-sovereignty is threatened, and your kingdom is crumbling all around you, the gospel says, let it fall. Let it fall. Until you come to a place of saying, I trust in the Lord with all of my heart. That's what Ahaz is missing. Now go to verse 10, and I'll, we'll see what this means. Because this is the first time now I want to show you the second time. Verse 10 says, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Okay, are you with me? So now verse 10 means something. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, so this is the Lord showing his mercy through Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord. Doesn't matter how deep, Sheol. Doesn't matter how high, heaven you ask God and believe and trust in him more than anything else he will respond to you ask God comes back through the prophet to give Ahaz another opportunity to hear and believe and hope and trust in the Lord but verse 12 Ahaz look what it says happened look at verse 12 but Ahaz said I listen, these are three of the most these are three of the, the 
the most frightening words you will ever read in the Bible. I will not. I will not. I will not ask him for a sign. Be careful when you utter those words. I will not trust the Lord. And be careful that you don't do it with religious hypocrisy because look at what's happening here in verse 12. Here's what Ahaz says. Ahaz says, oh, I'm not going to test the Lord because the Bible says, it's, you know, don't test the Lord. He starts quoting Deuteronomy in his response. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test as if he really means this, as if he's really spiritually deep and quoting the scriptures to, to feed his soul. That's not what's happening here. What Isaiah, I mean, what, uh, what Ahaz is doing is, is, is he's just kind of grabbing at something. He's like, oh, I, I would never test. Oh, me, I would never test the Lord. The Bible says, don't put the Lord to the test. That's the heart of man. That's the heart of Ahaz. Now, I want you to see the heart of God in contrast to the heart of Ahaz because I hope you will be increasingly convinced that you can no longer trust in yourself or anyone else to be what only God can be. The heart of God is faithful this is the second point. The heart of God is faithful even as he brings judgment. God can be trusted. The heart of God is faithful even as he brings judgment. I want you to be increasingly convinced that you can no longer trust in yourself or anyone else to be what only God can be for you. And I see the faithfulness of God here in three ways. Let me roll these out. Three ways that we see the faithfulness of God in this passage. Number one, God speaks to us even in the midst of our unbelief and fear and pride and scheming and planning. He's still speaking. That's what we saw in verses one through nine. God keeps pursuing his people even when they're full of pride and unbelief. That speaks to his faithfulness. Secondly, God continues to pursue and to promise and even make promises to us in the midst of our religious hypocrisy. I say that because of verse 12, because he's quoting the scriptures. Back to the prophet. I mean, there's such a deep irony here that Isaiah the prophet who's embodying the Word of God, speaking the Word of God, speaking the promises of God, speaking the hope of God, speaking the wisdom of God to Ahaz. Ahaz is going to quote a Bible verse back to Isaiah the prophet? Are you kidding? God continues to pursue and to promise and to speak hope in the midst of our religious hypocrisy. Now, I think that has application for the church today. He says in verse 13, 
And this is the speaking that continues. This is the promise that continues. Isaiah replies, hear then, O house of David. House of David is code language for I made a promise to David about his throne, the forever son, the forever king who will reign on the forever throne of David. The house of David is still alive. God is saying through Isaiah, the house of David is still alive in my story. Ahaz, it might not be alive in you. It's alive though. And it will never die. So God speaks to us even in the midst of our unbelief. He speaks and continues to make promise and pursue in our religious hypocrisy. And then third, and this is the best part, listen to this, the third, the third way that God is faithful even in the midst of judgment, best part, God incarnates his word among his people to show his faithfulness. God incarnate. God incarnates his word among his people to show his faithfulness. The word becomes flesh to show his faithfulness, to show his commitment by being present in a person. Verses 14 and following, look at this. Therefore, now this is Isaiah still answering. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, before he knows how to do that, the land of the two kings that you're afraid of, it'll be like desert land. They're going nowhere. So I'm going to give you a sign that when I say you can trust me, I mean you can trust me. God says, I want to give you a sign in the form of a person. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name God with us. You shall call his name Emmanuel. Why? Because I'm trying to send you a signal. I'm trying to help you see that I'm so serious about my faithfulness that I'm going to be present with you in a promise that I fulfill in a person. Now, we need to dig around in verse 14 a little bit because it's a challenging text. And because some of you have raced ahead to Matthew's gospel where it says Isaiah the prophet wrote about Jesus, he is Emmanuel, right? So I'm, that is where we need to go and we're gonna get there in just a second, but I need to start in Isaiah for a second. So put on your thinking cap for just a minute and let me, let's dig around in verse 14. So so that you can get a sense of two really important things that are happening. Something first in the context of Isaiah, then as it relates to Jesus in the New Testament. All right, so let me tell you where I'm going and then I'll try to make sense of it. I take the promised sign of the virgin who will conceive to have a single meaning both in Isaiah and the New Testament. Here's the single meaning. In both cases, the word of God becomes flesh as a sign of hope. The word becomes flesh as a sign of faithfulness among God's people. Here in Isaiah 7, let me tell you what I mean. Here in Isaiah 7, a real woman, a virgin, will bear a son to Isaiah. I say that because chapter 8 sounds a lot like what's happening in chapter 7. So, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, we'll just call him hashtag because that is so hard to say. All right, hashtag 
uh, is going to be a son. And verse three says, Isaiah went to the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Now some of you are saying, wait a minute, Isaiah already has a son in a previous chapter. That's right. So we think maybe this is his uh, second wife and his first wife perhaps has died. So this woman is a virgin. He takes her as his wife and he conceives a son. This son is a sign of hope that God is still with his people even in the midst of judgment in this massive, huge, significant judgment that's going on in chapter seven. That's the short version, okay? We can press into the details of this, but in my, as I've read the text and as I'm studying and sorting through this, what I I don't wanna do is I don't wanna minimize the importance of hope in this moment among God's people in the sign of Emmanuel, God is with them. Nor do I wanna neglect what Jesus, what is said of Jesus in Matthew's gospel that he is clearly the sign, the fulfillment of God with us. So I'm saying both and. I'm saying God with us means something in real time, in a real person in Isaiah seven and eight, but it's not the ultimate fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment comes in Matthew's gospel as Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, the ultimate significance of a virgin who will miraculously conceive without an earthly husband, that's Mary, that's the birth of Christ. So in the same way that Isaiah is a prophet, let me simplify it a little bit. Some of you, your heads are hurting right now, so hang with me. Let me simplify for a second. In the same way that Isaiah is a prophet whose life points to the ultimate prophet, do you believe that? Isaiah is a prophet whose life points, who speaks the word, who embodies the word of God. In the same way that Isaiah the prophet's life points to the prophet, prophet, priest, and king, the prophet Jesus. In the same way that that happens, so the promised child of Isaiah 7 is a life that points to the ultimate child, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God with us, of the word who becomes flesh to dwell among us so that we might have this certain hope that God is at work even in the midst of judgment. To me, that's what's so amazing about this, that God is faithful to his people even in the midst of judgment. All right, now I wanna test that with my third point, that God is faithful to his people even in the midst of judgment. Um, If you wanna build out the judgment of Assyria, it's in verses 18 and following. Actually, it starts in verse 17 of chapter seven. So if you wanna come back and look at that, if you wanna fill in some blanks there, do that. I'm not gonna do that right now, but it's there. Starts in verse 17 of chapter seven. What I want to do is move forward to the heart of God in Christ in fulfillment of the Emmanuel promise. Okay? Number three. If you're still with me and you are not on your phone or other device for reasons other than reading scripture, say amen. amen. Okay. Just need to make sure somebody's with me. Okay? If you're not with me, you're against me. All right, just wanted to quote the Bible. Okay, here's the third point. The heart of Jesus 
We've looked at the heart of Ahaz. Sign yourself up. That's the heart of man. We've looked at the heart of God who is faithful even as he brings judgment. He's faithful to give a sign. He's faithful. We've said in you know, so many different ways. We walk through those. Now, third point. Let's bring it all to Christ. The heart of Jesus Christ. God is with us, Emmanuel, and he's for us. And I'll say more about that in a second. And I want to make this claim that the heart of God is faithful even when he brings judgment on his people. I want to tie that directly to Jesus. You see where I'm going? Never has the heart of God been more faithful even when bringing judgment on his people than you fill in the blank. What are you thinking? Never has the heart of God been more faithful, even when when bringing judgment on his people, than at the cross of Christ. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. God is with us. So we we learn in Matthew chapter 1, right, when Joseph and Mary are trying to figure this out, they get a promise. The angel speaks, and he says, look, this is going to happen. This is in fulfillment of what Isaiah talked about. The virgin shall conceive, and he will be God with us. He will be Emmanuel. And Joseph's like, how's this going to happen? What's what's going on here? And and the angel speaks, and, and there's this line in there that doesn't just describe God with us, but God for us. Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of God with us. But God with us is just the beginning. So he lives and walks among us and serves and touches and heals and forgives all on the basis of where he's headed, right? He had set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. Why? Because there at the cross, he's going to do something. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to, in the words of Matthew 1, in the fulfillment passage, in the Emmanuel passage, he's going to save his people from their sins. How's he going to save his people from their sins? Yahweh saved. Jesus means Yahweh saves. How's he going to save his people from this? He's going to step up on a cross, a Roman cross. Un, uh, 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 he's being crucified from their perspective unwittingly. They don't know what they're doing. But he gives himself on a cross, and he hangs between heaven and earth to intercept the judgment of God on your behalf for us. Yes, he is Emmanuel, God with us, in fulfillment of the promise, the virgin shall conceive. But he's not just going to be with us, he's going to be for us. He's going to save his people from their sins. Wait a minute, I'm not sure I've got the connection between sin and judgment. All right, let me clarify that for you. Why do people need to be saved from sin? Well, people need to be saved from sin because sin is self-destructive. Sin hurts people. Sin's not good for people. Um, it's not good that you live an immoral life because it affects the people around you. It affects the world around you. It is sometimes illegal, unethical, and immoral. And it, it ruins you. It ruins society. Uh, it will ruin your life. It will, sin will ruin your relationships, your friendships, your financial stability, your own personal disposition, so much so that people won't even be, like to be around you because you're such an unhappy person because sin ruins people. Why do people need to be saved from sin? Because it ruins them? 
Yeah, that's part of the answer. It's an important part of the answer, but it's not the only part. And it's not the most important part. The most important reason that you need to be saved from sin is so that you can be saved from God and His terrifying, perfect, holy judgment. If you don't get saved from His perfect, terrifying, holy judgment, you will not survive. People need to be saved from sin because they need to be saved from God and His wrath, which is coming. And I am saying the judgment of God, what I'm saying is the judgment of God, you can't, it's partly true, but you can't stay there. Oh, I think that the judgment of God comes to us in the form of a crippled life and self-inflicted since, you know, and all the problems that we bring on ourselves, that's kind of hell on earth, and, and there's some truth to that. Sin brings devastating consequences. It'll ruin you, your family, your stability, everything. That's partly true. I mean, it is true, but it's not the, that's not the ultimate thing to be concerned about. The ultimate thing to be saved from is the terrifying, righteous judgment of God that has eternal consequences. Some people even awaken to their need for the gospel when they think about spending hell separated from God in eternal torment. And they should. It's a good reason. Some of you might have even come to faith in Christ when you went to a revival meeting and the preacher was bringing hell down on earth. Like, I mean, I'm sorry, bringing the judgment of heaven down on earth and it felt like the fire of hell was real and you might have said to yourself, man, I, wanna, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. That's a good reason to turn to Jesus. Judgment is real. Like, it's going to happen. People need to be saved from sin in order to be saved from God. God's ultimate wrath is going to find you one way or the other. I want you to hear that this morning. God's wrath is going to find you one way or the other. I thank God that this morning the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. It, the, the way I found, the way the wrath of God found me was that I came through the cross. And so I stand under the judgment that Christ, that was poured out on Christ. So I don't have to experience that judgment. I, I, you know, I don't bring anything to the table. What I bring is that I've thrown myself on the mercy of his cross and his atoning sacrifice. The only reason I can say with confidence I will not experience the eternal wrath of God is because Jesus did for me already. And that doesn't create self-confidence in me. That creates a sense of Christ confidence. He's my hope. He's my justification. He's the only reason I'm not afraid of where I'm going to go when I die. So I want to ask you today, if you feel and sense and know the heart of God in Jesus Christ for you, 
Yes, you've been affirming in your mind and heart that Christmas is all about God has come to be with us, and He has. And that is a foundational truth, right? And there's no cross if there's no manger. I totally agree with that. But it doesn't stop at the manger. It moves to the cross. God made two things possible in the life and death of Jesus that had never been never before been fully realized. His wrath and his love converged in the same place. His holiness and his mercy, his judgment and his compassion, all just, boom, just one moment in time and space and history. This is what Christianity has believed for, for two millennia. That nothing else explains the judgment, the wrath, the holiness of God, and His love and compassion and mercy like the cross of Jesus. And it's the only place you can go and hide from His wrath and His judgment and be safe. So I want to invite you to hide there. If you've never been there, I want to invite you for the first time to come and get under the powerful powerful covering of Jesus as he absorbs the wrath of God in your place at the cross. If you're not yet one who calls yourself a disciple of Jesus, you've not yet trusted in him, you've not yet seen the cross as the way that you could avoid the very best sense of the term, the wrath of God, I want to invite you to get in Christ. Come to the cross, come to Jesus today. And if you don't know how exactly that, what that looks like or how to do that, we're gonna pray in just a moment. We'd love to talk with you after church about how to do that. If you're already someone who considers yourself a Christian, I, I trust Jesus, uh, I believe in him, I, I wanna live for him, I, I wanna pray for you also. And I'm gonna pray for you from the first part of chapter seven. So let me pray. And let me ask you to join, join me in prayer, whether you've trusted Christ before or not. Will you join me in prayer? Those who want to trust in Christ for the first time, say something like this. Lord, I understand that I deserve your wrath and your judgment much like the disobedient people of Judah and Israel. I deserve your wrath. But now I understand that Jesus could take that in my place. So I want by faith to trust in him to do that today. To save me from the wrath of God to give me a new life, to heal my hurts, to let my sovereign kingdom crumble and make Jesus Lord. Help me to do that today. Those of us who are already believers, we're gonna pray something like this. Lord, we, would you quiet us? Help us not to fear. Strengthen our hearts. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart grow faint. 
Lord, we confess you are in charge. You are sovereign. We entrust our lives, our church, the future of our nation. It's yours. We give it to you freely. This we pray in the strong, powerful name of Jesus who rose from the grave as a victor conquering it all. We pray in his name, amen.